1960s, I believe, there was a great psychologist, Walter Michel, who did a famous clinical study called the Marshmallow Test, where he left second graders alone in a room with one marshmallow seated on a plate before them. How cruel could you be? And the instructions to the children were... If you can withstand ten minutes alone with this marshmallow, when I return, I will give you a second marshmallow. And this was obviously a famous test on impulse control. And uh, when they crunched the numbers and did follow-up tests, they found that uh, this test, even at second grade, was an excellent predicator to know whether children would be able to succeed in school or whether they would drop out, whether they would uh, be diligent students or they would succumb to the ways of drugs and alcohol, such as I did in my early years. And uh, all based on this one test you could predict. Uh, so, in fact, it became such a, uh, an accurate predictor that they eventually abandoned even doing the research and just taught the kids strategies to develop impulse control because up to this point they didn't realize how fundamentally important it would be to be with a thought or an impulse and not have to give in to it. A couple of years after that, there was the movie Ghostbusters, and uh, as memory serves, it's been 20 years, so I'm just riffing on this, but, in 20, uh, but I remember there was a scene where there is this malevolent force called the Gozer that is evil, and is, um, it is threatening the Ghostbusters, and it demands that they think of a form that the Gozer will take because it's a shapeshifter. It can take any form that people think. So they, the Ghostbusters try desperately not to think about anything. Unfortunately, um, Dan Aykroyd thinks of the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. And so the Gozer turns into this huge marshmallow creature that destroys New York. After that, in the 1990s... <laughs> The great Harvard psychologist Daniel Wegner did a famous study based on, I love this one, the uh, polar bear, the white bear study. He read that quote by Dostoevsky, there's nothing more impossible to do than to not think about polar bears when you try to not think about them. So he gave an instruction to people. Half, he said, think about polar bears, as much as you want. And to the other half, he said, don't think about white polar bears. And then he had them free associate. And every time they thought about white bears, they were supposed to hit this, this machine that would count. So the people who said, think about white bears, polar bears, he, he tallied up how many times they did. And then the people who said, don't think about them, he tallied up. And the people he instructed not to think about them thought about polar bears twice as often. <laughs> Which means any time in your life you try not to think about something, 
good luck. In fact, this one study gave birth to a huge field in clinical psychology based on thought suppression. And the idea is very basic. Human beings at times need to learn how to be with repetitive, obsessive, distressing thoughts. Anybody never had to deal with an obsessive, stressful, you know, repetitive? You feel free if you have. If you've never had to deal with that, I'd like to know you. That would be amazing. And there's so many forms. We can, I mean, we can be activated in so many different ways. You have something going on in the body. You don't know what it is until you find out. It can constantly come up to mind. You have to have a blood test. You don't know what the result is. That can keep popping into your awareness while you're doing other things, while you're engaged in a conversation. Suppose you're in a relationship and suddenly the person you're in the relationship with stops texting. Because that's what you kids do. You text. You don't pick up the phone anymore. (laughs) The worst way to communicate ever. But the texts dry up, and you don't know what's going on. Are we still going out? They they lost interest in me? What's happening? And then you're at work on the computer, but the thought about them... (laughs) uh, That's if you've got an iWatch, you know, here... We all have these thoughts, you know, financial insecurity, what's going to happen, will I have enough money, will I get fired? So, there are thoughts that are very difficult to, uh, to not pick up and to live inside of and to turn into an obsessive repetitive feedback mechanism that causes stress, that causes uh, fear activations that lock us in. And then there's a second kind of thought that's um, really difficult to deal with. It's called uh, neurotic anxiety. I like to think as a New Yorker that this is mine. You know, (laughs) other people have it, but you know, you get to a restaurant first, you think it's my restaurant before everybody. I like to think that neurotic anxiety is my personal anxiety. There's only four kinds of anxiety, but I like to to think I really know this one better than anyone else. Uh, Neurotic anxiety is the belief that there's something there's some quality in me that if other people could see it, they would be aghast and appalled. A kind of a, a feeling that one's, one has a true self that is ugly or uh, there are elements that we have, feelings, impulses, that are unworthy. And if other people could see it, they would be horrified. And so if you ever experience this, Doing what I am doing now is very difficult. Doing anything in front of people in public, if you have a fear of other people looking into your true self, can be excruciating. It causes what's known as social phobia. I've, I've had a difficulty much throughout the last ten and a half years at times speaking. I can have this feeling of like inner turmoil, my mind bouncing about. Because what happens is... Um, when there's neurotic anxiety, this thought that, oh, if I relax and people see, not if I relax, if people see how nervous I am, if people see how untogether I am, they won't like me. So we put up a compensatory, I put up, you know, at times in my life, a compensatory persona based on competence, confidence, and I've got all my stuff together. I want you to see... You know, the job interview self. 
the completely false weatherman on TV self. Hey! Um, and the moment we try to conceal that feeling that, oh, if other people saw my anxiousness, my fear, my sadness, my anger, if there's a part of me that if other people saw, they would run away, they would hate me for it. That creates what's called thought rebound, which makes the thought even stronger and even more difficult. The white bears. When Wagner said, don't think about white bears, they thought about it twice as often. If I have a part of me that I don't want you to see, I will be far more aware of that feeling, impulse, thought, memory, that part of me that I think is uh, unlovable will feel even more dominant than it is. So, once again, uh, the question is, how do we work with those thoughts, those feelings, those impulses? Interestingly, Wegner said that when we try to very often keep a thought at bay that's unpleasant while we show up in life and try to put on a persona or a facade of confidence or everything's okay, what we create is what's called cognitive overload. The mind stops functioning very well when we ask it to do two demanding tasks at the same time. Wegner noted that when he told people not to think about white bears and to talk or free associate about anything else, he created two functions. They had to free associate and think about things randomly, and at the same time, they had to prevent themselves from thinking about the white bears, and that created cognitive overload, which made them actually think more and more and more and fail at the task. If you've ever had stage fright, if you've ever had social anxiety, that's what, hap that's what happens, cognitive overload. We try to present ourselves to people as if everything's great, everything's wonderful in my life, it's all going swimmingly, it's all, it's all going according to plan, and there's that one little thing, I hate my relationship, I hate my job, I hate my parents, I hate this, the <laughs> and what happens is anxiety, stress, discomfort. So obviously um, suppression in and of itself doesn't work. There was some other uh, issues that come up besides thought rebound. Wegner also, with the people who did the white bears test, he gave them a distractor that was present in the room. He, he had a slide up on the wall that had an image on it. And he said, well, you know, I'll help you out here. Instead of thinking about the, the white bears, look at this image and use that as a way to distract yourself. And what he found was the image itself turned into what's called a retrieval cue. It reminded people of the bear. <laughs> So they even thought about the bear even more. So some distractions don't work. And this goes back to the Walter Michelle test with the marshmallow kids. 
Because when they looked at the kids, they took videos of them. The kids that stared at the marshmallow trying not to eat it failed miserably. But the kids that bounced around the rooms trying not to think about the uh, marshmallow, they didn't do very well either. They noted that the children that developed the skill of impulse control could bring up a skillful single reflection they would think about something else that wouldn't necessarily all the time trigger them if they only used it whenever the thought about the marshmallow became overwhelming. So they had something there that they could bring to mind. So what Wagner did is he, with a final group, he did the red Volkswagen test. He said to this group of people, Anytime you start to think about the white bears, think about red Volkswagens instead. And that worked. Because there wasn't a red Volkswagen in the room, so it wasn't there all the time to remind them of the thought that they were trying to keep at bay. But at the same time, they weren't building up retrieval cues with all the things that were around them. This is important. When I first started teaching... uh, in public, I had awful, awful stage fright. I, I get irritable bowel syndrome. And there's nothing like talking to people when you think you're going to shit your pants. <laughs> you know, you're trying to... Pres- I, I got everything together. I'm going to talk about the drama now and look like I... It's all going swimmingly in my life. And meanwhile, I think I'm going to shit myself. And... Unpleasant. And so what I, what I read was... <laughs> Look at, find somebody's face that looks friendly and stare at them. And that worked terribly. <laughs> I look at all these people and I look and I just even want to shit myself more because it, people's faces started reminding me of, you know, the discomfort. Eventually, people, um, when they really struggle with what's a transgressive thought, a harmful thought, um, they will begin to avoid all the situations that they associate with the thought. So it's known as avoidance coping. People will make their lives smaller and smaller and smaller because wherever they have uncomfortable thoughts or uncomfortable impulses, they will avoid those situations. A rather uh, sad example of that is I read a study about single mothers who were very stressed out and had ideations about harming themselves or their infants. And the irony is, is that if you have a transgressive thought that you struggle with, all the studies show that it's very unlikely that you're actually going to act out on it. The fact that you're struggling with it is an actual indicator that you almost certainly will not act out on it. But, of course, these mothers didn't know. So what they would do is they would avoid all the places where they had the stressful, transgressive thought. They'd stop bringing their, their children to the park or to the playground or to the other places where they had the thought. And eventually, they'd become essentially agoraphobic because any place where they had any ideation that was harmful, they would try to avoid. So it's really important to learn how to work with these fears, obsessive ideations, the worries, the self-doubt, the stuff that we don't want uh, to feel. How do we we work with these 
impulses, memories, the unwanted visitors in the mind. Well, there are a bunch of tools, and for a small price of 19.95. No, I'm not going to do that. It's all for free here. So, um, the first tool the Buddha called Vivaraki, and uh, it's really no surprise. It's pretty obvious if you haven't guessed what it is. Vivaraki means to live your life like an open book, to reveal, to disclose, and. The Buddha taught this even to his seven-year-old son, Rahula. In his first lesson to his son, he said, whenever you have an unskillful or difficult or painful impulse, find somebody who is wise and share it with them. I wish that somebody when I was in second grade said that. If they they made second grade that lesson, don't beat yourself up. Just find somebody who's compassionate and talk about it. When we do that, of course... We learn to emotionally regulate. We, when we conceal thoughts or hide them, they become disproportionate. The more we conceal a thought, the more we believe it's ours alone, that other people won't understand, that there's something unique about us that other people won't get. And also, just the feeling, impulse, or memory alone becomes even more discordant the more we resist it and push it down. This is why 12-step and support groups work so well. They remove the expert from the room and they just give people on an even footing a space where they can talk about uh, antisocial, transgressive, distressing memories, impulses, feelings. And in doing that, when somebody else comes up and says, oh yeah, I've had the same feeling, I've had the same experience, what happens is we regulate the emotion, the impulse, and we create a larger container for it. So it feels less powerful. It feels less unique about us when somebody else mirrors our experience. It feels less like an indicator that there's something wrong with me. It becomes something less we have to hide. Now we can do this revealing very skillfully. There's something that we feel is so distressing, we can move into it gradually, reveal it gradually. I was talking with somebody that I worked with who had, way many years in his past, had had a violent history and had wound up in jail. And I coached him to very gently with the people in his life that were going to be a support group to not just spill it out in the first time he, you know, met, but to move, to push, and to each time he would reveal a little bit more about himself, to look and see how the other person was holding. So if you were revealing a difficult experience or a difficult feeling or a a thought that you're struggling with, um... It might be, for instance, uh, you're in a relationship that's causing you pain or in a job that you don't like and you want to talk to somebody about it, you might want to gradually bring it up. It's not always great in this situation. There are times when I'm struggling. To be creative and to push oneself into disclosing, in disclosure, the Buddha noted, was the foundation of how the Buddhist renunciates, which are the longest-running social organization there is, 2,500 years continuously 
there have been Buddhist renunciates. And the foundation of how they live together is they reveal. They have a whole process of coming together, working through conflicts, revealing thoughts that are aggressive, or uh, you know, basically finding wise companions. And the Buddha def- defined over and over again the wise companion for this process. Somebody who's reliable, available, who doesn't judge, who holds your secrets securely. If you find that, really work with that. It's, uh, it's how we human beings get the bulk of our emotion regulation. Sati is opening our awareness to the suppressed as it arises without wishing it would go away, without trying to get rid of it. Not like, oh no, there's you again. When I was, after 9-11, I had a massive emotional distress and I, I started having all these thoughts about my life was a waste and all that, to see all that suffering that had happened right before my eyes and then uh, I had just such negative, disparaging thoughts and then the mistake I made at first was to think, oh, I'll just meditate them away. I'll use my practice as a spiritual bypass. It will get rid of my depression. It will get rid of my sadness. It will get rid of these feelings of confusion or not accomplishing anything. And that is a that is a fundamental mistake I made. The spiritual path is not about getting rid of anything. It's about learning to live with everything. In our society, with the you know, we we love the idea of the magic bullet that will get rid of things. We love the idea that we could take or consume, or there's some practice or some meditation I can give you, and you'll never have to feel lonely, sad, bored, frustrated, angry, confused ever again. And quite frankly, if there was such a practice, I wouldn't tell you it. Because that wouldn't be spiritual. To have a spiritual life is to learn how to live with life on life's terms, to be in a human body in the terms of the human body, to be in a human mind in its own terms, to be with fear, but not to make it worse. And most of our solutions, which are based on trying to get rid of to try to resist, to try to find the magic tool that will blast it out of existence like a video game, that's what makes it feel worse and worse and worse each time it arises. When I finally changed my relationship to uh, reading the depression, the feelings of low self-esteem, and I just said, hello, there you are, then suddenly all of the, the power and the force that it arose in my mind with immediately eviscerated. And it was very much uh, something I learned from the Buddha, who when his own shadow self, called Mara, sometimes people refer to Mara as a god or a demon, but it was really the Buddha's shadow self, the Buddha's self-doubt, the Buddha's desire to take it easy, and Mara would arise and say, hey, this is all too difficult. Let's get the hell out of here and go back to the castle and live life easy. What are you doing here? And the Buddha would say, I see you. I see you. There you are. He wouldn't 
chase it away. He wouldn't try to get rid of it. He wouldn't try to... He'd just say, I see you. And when I transform my relationship with all the difficult, painful, white bear thoughts, then I could be with them. Resistance is what makes things unbearable, not the things themselves. It's the resistance we bring to them. By the way, I meant to mention with the, uh, the, the, the first tool, disclosing, the, the moment that I had the breakthrough with uh, the stage fright is when I learned simply to tell people each time I was, I was uh, uncomfortable to announce that. I, went, I was giving a talk in front of uh, like 800 people, and I like, I like 50 people. It's a good amount for me. I feel okay with 50 people. Put me in front of 800 people, and like my stomach starts to rumble, and my breath starts to... And I went up in front of them, and I said, I, said, I am nervous. I'm completely nervous. I'm not, uh, this is not something that makes me particularly comfortable. And doing that allowed me to proceed and it created the bridge with which to bond with people, which is the key in any real spiritual encounter. Not to sit with people who pretend that they're, you know, over there on the other shore of enlightenment, but, but to sit and be with somebody that you can relate to, that you can understand. Um... Kanti is the Buddhist tool of patience. It's very similar to um, the incremental exposure of cognitive behavioral therapy, which means to turn towards and even invite that which we're frightened of, the thoughts that we don't want to think, and explore and investigate them. So, for instance, uh, for a long time I had... uh, uh, I grew up with an alcoholic, pretty violent father, so I would have these issues with macho guys. And whenever I uh, had to deal with some guy that I felt was really kind of like uh, one of those, I don't know, I guess they call them alpha male types, I would, uh, I would try to deflect, distract myself, not think about it. And I realized that that process set me up. And so what I would do was actively invite images of first my dad and those times where he was aggressive and just to be with that that the very thing that I was trying to keep at bay I'd actually invite it up and I'd see okay what do you do when you arise and I'd find the tightness in the belly the tightness in the chest the constriction in the throat and I created a safe container I allowed it to be there and I sent nurturing thoughts it's alright you can be there. I won't judge you. You're allowed to be there. I'm allowed to have fear. I'm allowed to have these feelings. I'll take care of you. We can even then learn. One person um, I was talking to very recently after a class, and she said basically that she had thoughts that would arise now and then about her own mortality, the recognition that that she and everybody she knew was going to die, and that what was the whole point? And she said she was utterly distraught by these thoughts, and uh, they, they would leave her depressed. 
And so what I worked with her is I actually gave her a meditation where she actively encouraged that, because it's true, we are all going to die. It's actually one of the Buddhist daily reflections. So I gave her a process and meditation of calming, soothing, uh, creating a safe container, then bringing up that awareness and sitting with it and holding it and then using it as a spur to growth rather than something that turned into immediate you know, dejection. Okay, I am going to die, so I have to prioritize my life accordingly. I have to go after that which is important to me with urgency and I have to start to let go of all the stuff that I'm doing that doesn't really resonate in my heart. I have to let go of with urgency. So sometimes we learn that those very things that we don't want to face actually can turn into the very engine of our spiritual growth if we simply turn and change the way we relate to those feelings and impulses. So finally, Pati Nisaveti, almost convinced I'm pronouncing that wrong, It's the Buddha's tool of thought substitution. The Buddha had a whole series of ways to deal with obsessive thoughts, but the very first one was find a skillful substitute, like Wagner's red Volkswagen. Have an image at hand when the thought becomes overwhelming. You don't try to kill the thought, but you just bring the thought or the other image into mind as something that self-soothes. So it could be a place that you feel safe or a person with whom you feel safe. Some, uh, some place that you associate with peace and calm. And very often just building it from the bottom up, which means what does it feel like when I'm on the beach or I'm lying at home on my couch or I'm sitting by the river? What does that feel like? And just bring that awareness into the body and allow it to build. And don't try to get rid of the thought. Just add this titrating um, experience. Titrating is what, uh, in psychology, is like you know security blanket. It's something that allows us to be with difficult experiences. So if you have an image or a memory or a person that you associate with safety, security, just bring it to mind and just ask yourself, how does it feel to be with this person? How does it feel to be with this place? And just to create that feeling in the body and allow the distressing thought to be there. You'll note again that in all of these strategies, welcoming, disclosing, uh, having titrating memories to be with, um, uh, investigating, all of the strategies have one thing in common. They're not about getting rid of anything. It's not about how can I be without my fear, be without my sadness, be without the memory of my traumatic events, be without this, but it's how can I hold this, be with these experiences, own these feelings, reveal them, hold them in a different way. That's at the heart of the spiritual practice. So I hope you got something somewhere from that that was worthwhile.